Hello and welcome once again to our study of the book of Acts. Uh, this is Bill Allen from Tyler, Texas on a very warm, sunny, kind of rainy at times uh, summer day in Tyler, Texas. Glad to have you along. Hope that you are having a good week and appreciate so much you uh, watching and viewing and considering this great study through this wonderful and amazing history of the first several decades of the Lord's church. Um, we have uh, been looking through the book of Acts and uh, find ourselves in chapter 20 today in uh, Paul's third mission journey. And so it's hopeful, um, hopeful that whether you're watching live or will be joining us uh, sometime later, uh, that uh, this will help you in your relationship with God and your understanding of his word and uh, the role that you have in his church. Uh, because all of those things are spoken of in Acts chapter 20. Uh, nice to see some of my good friends uh, coming along. My dear, wonderful Ashley K. Paso, middle daughter, great to see you here. And uh, Lenny and Joe Allard and others I know uh, that mean so much to me and continue to support and encourage me in this study and, uh, and as they walk their Christian walk of faith um, as well. Uh, what a great uh, opportunity to consider uh, the great uh, teaching about uh, God's church and about uh, this mission journey that Paul is on. Remember in Acts chapters 16 through 19, we have been watching him uh, over the um, second and third mission journeys, uh, starting uh, the church in Asia uh, and then going on through the church in Europe and looking especially in modern-day Greece, the northern province of Macedonia, uh, with the great uh, cities and churches in Philippi um, and Thessalonica and Berea, and the uh, southern province of modern-day Greece in the first-century Roman world, Achaia, uh, with his experiences in Athens, first of all, in the midst of that idolatrous city, and then uh, going on to Corinth from there in the great beginning to that, that church, uh, as we've come along the way, we have uh, left the second journey, and then in Acts 18, immediately, in Luke's record anyway, uh, began the third mission journey, as we call it, of the Apostle Paul. Uh, and we found ourselves in Ephesus for quite some time in chapter 19. And um, uh, that was a, uh, an incredible study, an incredible experience with uh, the Greek goddess uh, Diana, or Artemis, of the Ephesians and the incredible temple that they had built for her there, and the, uh, the riot that took place in that uh, huge theater in Ephesus and Paul's life being threatened, and ultimately uh, he has got to leave uh, the city of, of Ephesus. And so we find him in chapter 20 kind of reaching back into that church at Ephesus without spending time there uh, on this third journey, he uh, calls on the Ephesian elders to come and, and meet him. And that is, um, that is what we will be looking at, um, looking at today. So again, welcome to all, Eric and Cindy Mosley, my dear, dear friends here uh, in uh, the Tyler area. So glad to see that y'all are joining in. And my dear sister, Debbie Spears, rolling in uh, as well. And so glad to see you uh, joining us. Um, so sometimes uh, I think we forget that Paul and other 
characters in the Bible uh, were real people living in real times and experiencing um, real situations in life, not unlike many of the things that we experience in our lives uh, today. It's amazing to see how uh, similar we are in, in situations with the people of the Bible. And I think one of the things that helps me a lot in Bible study is as I'm reading these stories, and some of them I'm really familiar with, and I know that's true for you as well, but as we read through these stories, I think it really helps us if we remember that these were real people. The, the, what we're reading about actually happened to people who were living in their world just, just as real and vulnerable as we are in our world today. Granted, obviously, there were a lot of cultural differences. There were a lot of historical differences and all of that, geographical differences, political differences, and yet a lot of those things are still very, very similar. They had the, all the human needs that we have. Uh, they were a part of society and culture, just like we are. Uh, they had civil authorities, just like we do. And, um, and they also, in the first century, as we read through this book of Acts, starting in chapter two on, they were a part of a, of a church. And as we read this, the, these words in Acts chapter 20, it is interesting to me that this is just, this is just church life. And, and that's really what Luke uh, records as, um, as we see Paul and his uh, traveling companions, missionaries with him on these journeys. And as he uh, drops them off and leaves them in certain places to continue the work and then rejoin him later, um, we we find that it's it's interesting the way Paul deals uh, with churches of the first century, because uh, we we know that uh, some of those same situations exist uh, today. So uh, take a look at your handy dandy Bible map, uh, either on your uh, cell phone as you Google or your laptop or tablet or in a commentary or likely in the back of your Bible or even in the, in the context of your Bible. If you have a good study Bible, there's likely a map somewhere around uh, there, maybe just before you get to chapter 20, that uh, is a map that shows uh, the third mission journey. And it shows it beginning in Antioch of, of Syria, um, there on the northeastern uh, coast almost, not quite on the coast, but close, of the Mediterranean Sea, that great church at Antioch of Syria that we read about in Acts 11, uh, where the disciples were first called Christians, uh, Antioch of Syria, the way they reached out to Jews and Gentiles, very evangelistic, very benevolent. They sent Paul and Barnabas on the first mission trip, and that first trip at the end of chapter 11 was a benevolence mission trip. They went, uh, collected money, and, and sent it to uh, those uh, Christians and Jews in Judea to try to help them uh, face a famine. Uh, great, great step of, uh, of mission and mercy by that great and wonderful church. And then in chapters 13 and 14, that church at Antioch sends out Barnabas and Paul, uh, at that time still being called Saul of Tarsus until just beginning in that trip. And then uh, Luke just has a little line in there that says, who was also called Paul, and from then on it's Paul. Um, and he, uh, uh, they, they begin the church and do a lot of work in what we would call modern-day Turkey. And, and on their way back, they kind of retrace their steps and establish elders in each of those cities, in each of those churches. 
just perhaps uh, two or three years maybe after those churches had been established, not very long at all. And yet, of course, great gifts of the Holy Spirit unique to the first century, but also an incredible opportunity and important time as the church was really just beginning and had not been around for uh, very many years at all. And so they, um, they establish those churches. They ordain elders in each of those places as they go back. They go back and have a big mission Sunday uh, at Antioch. Um, and then, you know, we find the, um, the uh, Jerusalem conference in chapter 15 as they kind of sort out the issues related to the church reaching out to non-Jews now for the first time as the people of God to accept non-Jews without making them uh, convert to Judaism. Uh, the first time in, in 2,000 years, 2000 B.C. approximately, when Abraham was given, uh, was called uh, by God and uh, became uh, the father of, of the Jewish nation and, and the chosen uh, people of God. And so in, now it's different. And now the church is the chosen people that stretches out beyond boundaries. There's no boundary that, that keeps the church. The church is in every country and every people and every economic factor and every race and ethnicity. Um, there's, there's nowhere where the reaches of the gospel can't go. And that's the, and the church at Antioch of Syria took that seriously. And so they send Paul and Silas the second time out um, on uh, the second journey. And they hear that Macedonian call. So they go across the water into modern day Greece and Europe for the first time, establish the churches there, as we said, come back and find their way back to Antioch again. Uh, and Luke doesn't say much about that. And then they strike out again on the third journey and go back through those churches in uh, what we would call modern-day Turkey, and once again join those um, in, in Macedonia and Achaia after those experiences in Acts 19 that we talked about last week uh, in the city, the important city of Ephesus. And if you missed that lesson, we talked a lot about that city and, and about some of the correspondence and relationship that we find uh, in Scripture uh, that involves uh, the church at Ephesus. Uh, so now we come to um, now we come to chapter 20, and if you're following along on the map, you're going to see Paul go across the water from uh, into into uh, Philippi and, and Macedonia and Achaia. Although Luke doesn't record much about what happens there, it could have been who knows how long he was there. the The third mission journey, uh, probably four or five years, and so he was could have been there uh, for quite some time. Uh, but Luke doesn't record much of the story uh, there as he did in uh, the second journey when those churches were first uh, established. And so now we come to uh, chapter 20. And um, chapter 20 begins with these words. When the uproar had ended, and it's speaking about those riot, that riot at Ephesus, it was this huge arena. Uh, historians say it could have sat maybe 25,000 people uh, in the first century. The temple of Artemis or Diana, uh, whether you're going by the Greek or Roman name uh, of the Ephesians, this goddess who was supposedly a daughter of Zeus and twin sister, uh, older by not very long, uh, of Apollo. Um, that huge temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And they didn't like the idea of Paul preaching about a god who could not be worshipped with things built by hands. And so the silversmith saw him hitting them in the checkbook 
and they stirred up the people and got an emotional crowd, mob going, and they nearly killed Paul, but this uh, civil uh, attendant, this, this civil ruler, took control of the assembly, and the word there is ecclesia, same word translated in other places, church, because that's what church is. It's an assembly of, of people. Um, and, uh, and, and told them, hey, look, <laughs> you're not doing right, and you need to go home. And they did, uh, interestingly enough. And so again, Acts 20, verse 1, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out uh, for Macedonia. Um, so now he's going to go across and uh, go on uh, on this uh, third uh, journey. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. So you see his, his, his trail, what he's doing. Ephesus is in the western part of what we would call modern-day Turkey, the Roman province, first-century province of Asia, um, not far from the coast. And, um, and he goes from there to modern-day Greece, goes through Macedonia, those churches at Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and perhaps others, and then goes down to what Luke records as Greece, which is the Roman province of Achaia, and, and there, again, those important churches of Corinth and Athens, uh, revisiting them. And then because there's some trouble, he decides instead of just going across uh, uh, the sea, he decides that he's going to go back uh, the way he came. And so he retraces his steps uh, and goes back through Macedonia. You can read some of that correspondence that Paul has with the Corinthians in First and Second Corinthians or or with the Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, of course, Philippians as well. Uh, but uh, he has some interesting interaction in those letters, especially to Corinth and to Thessalonica, that uh, uh, as, you, as you consider his travels and his future plans and, and what actually happens, it's kind of interesting to read. Verse 4 of Acts 20, He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, there in Macedonia, Aristarchus and Segundus from Thessalonica, also in Macedonia. Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, who had been his uh, traveling companion and mission partner since early in the second journey. Antichicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. We read about them in some other places uh, as well, um, perhaps in that area of, Ephes of Ephesus and Colossae. Verse 5, these men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, uh, where we stayed seven days. So uh, he goes across the sea from modern-day Greece and goes back to what we would call the western coast of modern-day Turkey, uh, the Roman province of Asia, up in the, the northern part of that, and the city of Troas. Um, and so here, I think, a very important event takes place. He goes to church. Uh, interestingly enough, in the New Testament, we just don't have very many, very much insight into what happens on Sunday uh, with the church when it's gathered. We see a little bit of that uh, in Acts chapter 2. We see a good bit of it in 1 Corinthians 11 as he talks about the Lord's Supper, and in, um, and in 1 Corinthians 14 especially as he talks about how the worship assembly uh, should go and that it should be a source of great encouragement to people and it should not be something that is that is chaotic, uh, but rather is something that even the spirits of the first century uh, 
prophets who had that extraordinary gift of prophecy. Paul, Paul uh, calls on them to, to control their gift because if their gift is not encouraging and helping other people in the worship assembly, then they need to be quiet because that's what the worship assembly is for, is to, is to encourage one another. And we do that by worshiping our great God together. I love uh, some studies that I've had on, the, on worship and on the worship assembly. Uh, and those who have uh, talked about there being uh, a focus and a purpose in the worship assembly. Uh, we uh, typically say that the purpose of the worship assembly is to worship God, and I, I don't think that's exactly true, because that's our purpose all the time, either directly or indirectly, and even directly, if you're talking about singing and praying and studying Bible study, all those things, that can be done anywhere. It can be done even remotely, uh, but the difference when it's the worship assembly is that there is mutual encouragement. And I think that's why our focus, of course, on God always and on his word and his call to live faithfully. But the purpose is to worship him together and to encourage one another as we do that. That seems to be faithful to what Hebrews chapter 10 says in verse 25 when it says, don't, don't stop meeting together, but encourage one another and all the more as you see uh, his return imminent as you see the day approaching. Um, and, and that seems to be the purpose in 1 Corinthians 14 especially, uh, because they weren't doing that, and they were being very selfish, and Paul calls them out on it and calls on them to be more encouraging. During this time of pandemic, especially here in the United States, um, we, have, we have seen some great testing of our churches. I mean, it is, it is a struggle. It is hard. And uh, many of you watching are members of our Western Wind Church family. Others are members of other church families. Uh, wherever you are, you've had some struggles with this, and it's, and it's been difficult. Uh, we did not have any live services for, I think, seven weeks um, in, uh, earlier this year, uh, starting at the end of March and going until Mother's Day in May. Uh, during that time, we were blessed to have something like this, an online presence where people could go to our website or go to our Facebook Live page and, and be able to, to take part in our worship assembly. And many are still doing that today because of, of concerns for health and especially the vulnerable, the elderly, uh, those who have special uh, health conditions that make it, uh, would make it difficult for them to recover, quite frankly, if they, uh, if they tested positive and contracted uh, this novel coronavirus. So it, we, we understand that, and, and it, we're grateful that that doesn't mean they don't get to go to church at all. They just get to go to church at their home uh, or at their neighbor's home or their family's home in small groups. We've had seen that going on since the uh, middle to the end of March here in Tyler, and uh, thankfully so many of you have said that we enjoy watching and taking part in your uh, worship services online. Uh, just this week, I was able to have some communications with some wonderful dear friends of ours, uh, Sam and Jane Hickam from uh, our Arlington days, and said, hey, we've been watching you guys since uh, before Easter. And uh, the last couple of weeks, yes, we've had some technical problems, which we hope to have resolved uh, before this Sunday. Uh, but um, but it's, it's a great, great thing. It's a wonderful blessing. But it doesn't change the purpose of the assembly. We're still there to encourage one another. Whether you're watching online or whether you're one of the 157 that we had this past Sunday in our auditorium, uh, 
we are, we're there to encourage one another, and we do that by worshiping and focusing upon our God together. Interestingly enough, Paul, in the middle of this mission journey, Luke stops specifically to talk about the time they went to church while they were in Troas on this, uh, on this mission journey. You know they did that every Sunday, uh, but he doesn't always tell us that. He talks about them getting together with some other disciples or believers but he doesn't talk about them actually taking part in the Sunday assembly much, but he does in Acts chapter 20, and it gives us a little bit of insight into, into the, the purpose and uh, what takes place in a worship assembly in the first century. I encourage you to read books by people like William Willimon and Ralph Martin and um, uh, uh, Church of Christ historians uh, uh, such as Leonard Allen, uh, and others who have uh, done such great work in, in, in studying the, the church history and being able to share uh, some of that with us. John Mark Hicks has a wonderful book out uh, on the Lord's Supper and, and so many others that have written uh, important things. Uh, and we're grateful. We're grateful for that. And so let's, uh, let's go to church with Paul in Troas, uh, shall we? Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and, because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. Okay, so it's important for us to have long sermons when we go to church. I think that's completely scriptural. I don't know why people seem to get so upset about that. Okay, well, remember, they meet on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. It's not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday. Remember, God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. Uh, that Sabbath is the seventh day. When uh, the Old Testament talks about remembering the Sabbath to keep it holy, it's the seventh day. It's not the first day. So why does it say they met on the first day of the week here? Well, you know the answer to that, don't you? There was a significant event that happened on the first day of the week, and that was the resurrection of Jesus. Very early in the morning, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four talk about it. Uh, very early in the morning on that first day of the week, uh, the women went to the tomb and they discovered that the stone was rolled away and, and that the body of Jesus was not there. And then they ran and told the, the apostles and then they ran and, and looked. And, and uh, it's just a, a great story at the, in the closing chapters of, of the Gospels. Uh, and so from then on, uh, we saw the emphasis being on the first day of the week, the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, when the church first began and was established, that's a Sunday. Uh, that's 50 days after uh, Passover. And so there was a, that was a, a first day of the week as well. And we see that indicated here in Acts chapter 20 and in other places, such as 1 Corinthians uh, 16. Uh, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Well, breaking bread can talk about two different things. It can talk about a common meal, and it's actually going to be talking about that here in this context in just a little bit, but not right here. The second uh, way that that phrase is used is in talking about the Lord's Supper, that meal that we share, the bread that we break and partake of, the cup that is fruit of the vine that we drink, uh, remembering the body of Christ that was broken for us, and remembering um, the, the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us. And in the process, remembering the body of Christ, which is um, his church. 
In 1 Corinthians 11, we read about that, um, that great teaching on the Lord's Supper. And like much of 1 Corinthians, the only reason that teaching is there is because they had messed it up so badly that Paul would tell them in 1 Corinthians 11, it's not even the Lord's Supper that you're eating. Uh, which means, boy, they were really way off. Well, what? read that section in 1 Corinthians 11 closely, verses 17 through 34. And I think what you'll find there, it wasn't that they weren't thinking of the body of Christ that was broken on the cross. It's because they weren't considering the body of Christ the church, because there were some that were able to be there before others, and they were eating everything that they had. In the first century, that that this a part of worship. This Lord's Supper was typically taken in the context of a common meal. So much so, and that was part of the problem in 1 Corinthians 11, that Paul says, hey, look, if this is going to be a problem for you guys, stop doing it. Eat your meal at home and not uh, as it, when you gather together as a church. So it was kind of interesting. In Acts chapter 2, we see that also in verses 42 uh, through 47, when Luke records about the first days of the church, uh, he talks about both of these. They, um, they committed themselves uh, to and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or doctrine, uh, to uh, the breaking of bread, uh, and to fellowship, and to prayer. Well, they, they were doing the Lord's Supper right from the start. And then later on in Acts chapter 2, in that same passage, it talks about how they uh, shared their meals together and met from house to house and encouraged one another and helped provide for one another. Um, wonderful thing, wonderful context there. Here we find that the reason and the purpose for them meeting uh, was not to hear a great sermon by Brother Bill or Brother Paul, but rather it was uh, to gather around the table together as a family and to share what I like to call the church's family meal. Um, when I was going to Abilene Christian University and participating in the wonderful Doctor of Ministry program under the late and amazing and, and beloved Dr. Charles Seibert, um, I had to come up with a uh, project thesis to do at the end. And, um, and I wanted it to be centered around the Lord's Supper. And so I did a project thesis on developing a theology of the Lord's Supper, uh, where I took a group of 20 or so of our wonderful members and friends of mine and leaders, church leaders at that great church of ours, Woodland West Church of Christ in Arlington. And for a whole month, we had an intensive study of the Lord's Supper. And I had them reading all kinds of stuff, and we would meet together, and we would talk about it. And and uh, the, the, the project thesis uh, ran the uh, related to looking at the historical uh, uh, part of the Lord's Supper and the theological part of the Lord's Supper, but beginning with the biblical part. Uh, and so I, we did that study of the biblical, historical, and theological aspects. And then we wrote a one-page theology of the Lord's Supper ourselves. The word theology doesn't have to scare us. It's a combination word in the, in the original language and the Greek, which just means a word of, about God. Um, or God's word on something. And so that, that idea of uh, theos and logos, a word about God, uh, teaching from God on certain things, it just becomes a what you understand that teaching to be. And so we did that. And it was a wonderful, marvelous experience, just a, just a great experience. But one of the things that was confirmed to me in that study is that the purpose of our assembling together on Sundays is to partake of the Lord's Supper. That is clearly the New Testament 
purpose. We can worship, we can do a lot of things at other times in every place, but there's nowhere in Scripture that talks about the Lord's Supper being observed at any time other than Sunday. And, and specifically in this verse, in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, Luke says that we found the church. They were travelers, they were missionaries, and they were in this city of Troas. And on the first day of the week, they came together to break bread, not to eat a meal, although they did that later, but rather to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And in the context of that worship, as is a part of our worship today, Paul preached to them. Uh, the Jews, as you likely know, measured time from sunset to sunset. And so it could be that on this first day of the week, they began in the evening. Uh, so we're trying to uh, help Paul out here and not make his sermon being hours and hours and half a day long, probably not. Uh, but it was long enough. And he preached this message. Luke doesn't give us any insight into that message, but we've seen other messages that Paul has seen uh, in Athens to non-Jews, uh, where he quoted some of their own Greek and Roman poets, and in, um, in, uh, on his first mission journey, uh, where he, in Acts chapter 13 and 14, where he preached in the synagogue and spoke to primarily Jewish audience and, and, um, and used a lot of Old Testament. Well, perhaps it's a combination here in Troas, because at this point he's having a lot of Jew and non-Jewish uh, people that he meets with and worships with. At any rate, they, they came and they met, and they met together to break bread, to partake of communion, and they did. Um, and then Paul spoke to them, uh, and because he wasn't going to stay longer, he couldn't preach another sermon tomorrow night, uh, he, um, he, he preached a long one so that he could say everything that he felt like they, that needed to be said. Verse 8 of Acts 20, There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus. Remember that guy, Eutychus, who was seeking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Now, I got to tell you, this, this warms my heart. You know, it, just, it shouldn't probably, but it really warms my heart to know that here was a young man who was listening to the great apostle Paul preach, and he fell asleep. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Now, I've got to say, that I'm, I'm good with that. I think that's the typical thing that should happen when one falls asleep during a, another one's sermon. It makes sense to me. You know, actually, I'm, I, I have not been offended by people. I, I tell people, I don't mind you sleeping during one of my sermons. Just don't snore because you might disturb the person sleeping next to you. That's all. That's my only concern. And, you know, if people need rest, I, Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. If people need to rest that badly and my sermon will help, I'm okay with that. It's ministry, you know. It's what I've given my life for. I'm okay with that. Well, let's get back to serious, Bill. This young man, Eutychus, uh, this upper room where they were meeting, he was sitting in a windowsill, which he never should have done, uh, knowing that uh, he wasn't exactly energetic and he was going to be listening to a sermon and a message, and who knows how long it would go. And as it went on and on, uh, he fell into a deep sleep and fell, fell from that upstairs window and died. He was killed in the fall. Verse 10, Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. Now we're talking about a meal. 
because they had already met together and had, broke, had broken bread, as best we can tell. Could be wrong about this, of course, but as best we can tell in the tradition of the first century, uh, we see it in Acts 2, we see it in 1 Corinthians 11, we see it here, we see it in passages such as Jude 12 that talks about the love feast, that agape feast that the church members shared in the context of their worship. Uh, they were worshiping together and they, and they ate together. Uh, Jude 12 uses that exact uh, term. Many say that 2 Peter 2.13 uh, is the same and speaks to that same term. Again, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and Acts 2, other passages on that. And so it wouldn't be unusual at all for them to, uh, for them to share a meal, meal together. How long did that go on? We typically don't do that. We may have dinner on the grounds, as it used to be called, a covered dish uh, luncheon or just a, um, a fellowship meal in the Family Life Center after church. Don't you miss those days? I miss those days. Oh, hurry, 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 God, and deliver us to be able to do that and, um, and feel good about it. I believe that day is coming, but it's not here yet. Um, but, we, you know, that maintains that same uh, tradition and that same practice. Uh, when did that stop? Well, probably not in the first century. There's nothing to indicate in Scripture other than 1 Corinthians 11 saying, look, if this creates a problem, stop doing it. Um, but um, historians, church historians, tell us probably sometime in the 2nd century, in the 100s uh, of the common era, era the AD 100s, um, certainly the indication from a historical perspective is by the middle of the 3rd century, sometime before um, 250 CE, um, that practice was was pretty much not being done anymore. Um, but you can chase that down and look at great uh, historical studies, like I mentioned earlier, if you, if you want. Uh, Paul uh, heals this man. He raises him from the dead. Jesus had raised a few from the dead, at least three that we know of. Um, Peter had raised a man from the dead, uh, a woman from the dead, and now Paul does as well. Verse 11, then he went upstairs again. They broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he wasn't finished with his sermon yet. I love that. Okay, we've had a little interruption. This guy fell out of a window and died. I raised him from the dead. We got something to eat. Okay, now point three, uh, I love that. Um, he goes ahead and he, uh, and he continues to preach. And then uh, knowing again that he had to leave, they left the next day. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly uh, comforted. That may or may not have been the last time young Eutychus fell asleep during a sermon. I don't know. Could be. Could be. Okay, so sailing on back to the mission journey. We're still on the third mission journey. It's not going to end until Paul gets arrested in Jerusalem in chapter 21. So let's keep reading in verse 13. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. Now remember when Paul and when Luke is writing these things and he uses the first person plural, as best we can tell, and this is an assumption, but I think it's a, a, a good assumption, uh, that's when Luke was with them. Luke was a companion of, of Paul. He is referred to in some of Paul's writings and uh, likely he was with him on some of this part of the journey and he will be with him later on. Uh, as best we can tell, he may accompany him on that journey to Rome that we're gonna read about, that exciting, crazy journey uh, that takes place in Acts 27, where he is shipwrecked and uh, ends up on an on a unknown island, and then they finally get good weather in a ship and, and sail on to Italy. Um, 
exciting, exciting chapter in Acts chapter 27. Um, but Luke, as best we can tell, is with him uh, right now. Um, and so, again, verse 15. The next day we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Okay, so now we have made it across the sea and we're um, kind of right there on the western coast of modern-day Turkey or the Roman province of Asia, where Ephesus and all those seven churches of, of, uh, of, of Asia were that Jesus writes to in the book of Revelation that are named in chapters 2 and 3. Ephesus is one of those, as we said uh, last week. Remember, Ephesus is the church that Jesus wrote to and said, you have forsaken your first love. Um, and that's and now we're um, uh, uh, several miles away uh, from Ephesus, but certainly a reasonable journey. And so what Paul is going to do is call for the elders from the church at Ephesus to meet him there um, in this uh, little place called Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. Remember, he had celebrated Passover. Now he had come across and was in the western the uh, part of modern-day Turkey in the, in the Roman province of Asia, still just on the coast. And he wanted to get back to Jerusalem before Pentecost, which would be less than two months after Passover. Um, and so he decides, I'm going to bypass Ephesus. I don't want to get caught up there again. Remember in chapter 19, that's where there was a lot of trouble and a big riot. And if something like that happened again, if somebody said, hey, yeah, we remember that guy, uh, it could cause a big, huge delay. And Paul didn't want to take that chance. And so he, instead of going to Ephesus, uh, this is what happens in Acts 20, verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. So he's calling on the elders of the church, also known as shepherds or uh, the word shepherd is the word pastor, also known as overseers, which is the word from the word episkopos, where you get episcopalian, and it's from, uh, it's also called overseers or bishops. All of those terms, as we're going to see in a passage in 1 Peter 5, are used to describe elders of the church who are the overseers. And we remember we were introduced to them on Paul's first journey when he and Barnabas uh, ordained elders in each of the towns and the churches where they had that they had established. So Paul is on uh, Miletus, uh, as this island just off of the western province of Asia, uh, and he calls for the elders from Ephesus because he wants to meet with them. There are some things that have been revealed to him uh, that that he um, that he, he's very concerned about. Um, verse 18, when they arrived, he said to them, now we're going to hear what Paul has to say to these elders of the church um, at Ephesus. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. He was persecuted a lot uh, there in Ephesus, and he stayed there a long time, two to three years, over two years, well over two years. Um, uh, verse 20, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. Uh, he preached when the church met. He preached publicly. He also held uh, Bible studies and smaller gatherings, especially with, um, with these elders. 
I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. What a great statement in verse 21 of Acts 20 of what the response of faith entails. People who come to God must come to him in faith, uh, believing in him and, and in repentance. Uh, and if this was the only verse in the New Testament, then that we would say, okay, that's it. That's all we have to do. Uh, but it's not. And so we read in many other passages, such as we're going to read Paul mentioned when he tells his own story in Acts 22, what we saw with Philip and the Samaritans in Acts 8, and the Ethiopian in Acts 8, and Cornelius uh, and with Peter teaching him, baptizing him in Acts chapter 10, the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, uh, the Philippians in Acts 16, beginning with Lydia and then the jailer, baptizing them and, and their whole families. Um, here he has this summary statement, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Um, verse 22, and now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. All along the way, as we're going to see, he's going to be warned, it's going to go bad for you there. And people are going to tell him, please don't go, but he's going to go anyway. Verse 23, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. What a great statement from this man. He calls himself the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1. At his conversion, Ananias tells him, you're going to be God's messenger to the Gentiles and you're going to suffer a lot. Uh, you'll stand before uh, paupers and, and kings. And, and Luke records that in the book of Acts. Um, but he says, I'm going to, whatever I do from here on out, it's going to be proclaiming the message of salvation through Jesus Christ because Jesus had confronted him and forgiven him. And so Paul, now you can shut him up about that message. And that's how it should be with us too, knowing we too are the worst of sinners. And yet Jesus has forgiven us and his blood has washed away our sins as well. So it's a, it's a great statement of faith and mission uh, from the Apostle Paul, knowing that it's not going to be easy. We're looking at times in our own country where it may not be easy uh, to meet together, to partake of the Lord's Supper, to confess faith in Jesus Christ, to believe in uh, the things that he says, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one can come to the Father except through him that there is a response of faith, that uh, all of those things are well-grounded teachings in Scripture. Uh, and, and if we have to pay a price to stand firm with those teachings, then we must. Um, we must. And so now he's going to warn these um, elders from the church at Ephesus. Verse 25, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. That's a statement that's going to really, really hit them hard. This is a very emotional moment. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Um, Paul had said earlier in this passage, look, I'm, I don't consider my life anything other than a, a tool of God to preach his gospel. Um, in Philippians chapter 1, writing from jail in Rome, he had told the Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I, if I die here, I'm ready for that. But, 
But I think in the context of Philippians 1, I, I think I'll be relieved and released. And if I live, it's because God has more work for me to do. And that's what he believed would happen. And as best we can tell historically, that is, that is what happened. Galatians 2 verse 20, that great verse where we have a song. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, raise your hand if you remember that song. Okay, I can't see who is raising their hand, but you can tell me if you want that you raise your hand. Um, that verse is a very powerful verse. Again, I am crucified with Christ, Paul says. He says that three different times in uh, Galatians. Uh, and it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And that's, that's, how, that's what he truly believed, and that's how he lived, and that's how we should live as well. And so now this great verse, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it's, I think it's one of the most powerful verses for uh, shepherds, for bishops, for elders of the church, um, and, and for all of us. Acts 20, verse 28, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And so Paul uses the term elder. He, Luke records the term elder as he calls on the elders from Ephesus. He talks about them being overseers, watch over the flock. And he uses that term shepherds, pastors. In fact, he uses it as a verb. Uh, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so just as Jesus in John chapter 10, that great John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Uh, I lay down my life for the sheep. He calls on elders on to, sh to shepherd God's church, this church that Jesus bought with his own blood. And I love the way he says that here, because remember, he's talking to a specific group of men, a specific group of elders who had a specific church, the church at Ephesus, uh, that they were overseers of. They weren't overseers of any other church but that one. But it was that one, Paul says, that, that they were to shepherd, and it was that one, he says, that Jesus purchased with his own blood. And so we, we understand that. There's a sense where church is used in a universal sense, and, and Jesus died for all the saved. But there's also a sense where you're talking about your church family, my church family, and, and we recognize that Jesus died for that church. That church meant so much to him that he gave his blood for them. Uh, keep watch over yourselves. Watch over the flock uh, of which the Holy Spirit has made you people to watch over, overseers, bishops. Be shepherds. Shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. What a great statement to church elders today. This is how they are to react. This is how they are to live, and, and this is the intensity that they are to have in their lives towards this church, which the Holy Spirit has called them uh, to watch over. There are other great passages of Scripture in 1 Timothy 3, in Titus 1, as Paul writes to Timothy in Ephesus uh, later, and uh, to Titus in, on the island of Crete, and describes to them the kind of character and the kind of integrity and the kind of life that these men who would serve as elders are to have. And then that great passage in 1 Peter 5, where Peter talks to them about what it means to be a shepherd uh, and, and how they are to live their lives. Um, I love that passage so much, I want us to read it. 1 Peter 5, beginning at verse 1, 
To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. We knew that Peter was married because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. And we also know that an elder, according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, are to be uh, married men with, with children who exhibit some uh, degree of faithfulness, especially while they're under their uh, tutelage. But Peter was a fellow elder. And so he says, I appeal as a fellow elder uh, and a witness of Christ's sufferings. Be shepherds, again, shepherd, verse 2, God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, overseeing, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. The primary way that elders serve is by uh, overseeing that work and being an example, uh, eager to serve. And when the chief shepherd appears, verse 4, yes, elders have a chief shepherd as well. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. We must always be prayerful for our elders and their wives and their families. They take on so much. They burn with a desire to serve, and their hearts are filled with uh, uh, anxious uh, worries at times for those members of the church that they know are struggling. And certainly in these difficult times, when the whole church is facing great challenges, I appreciate and love so dearly the elders of, of our church family here and all the elders and shepherds that I've served under. Great, great men. Uh, perfect? No, not, not at all. They, they all have their faults. Um, they all have their challenges and struggles, but they are all men whose hearts are given over uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ as their master and Lord and to the church uh, to serve in this capacity. What a blessing, and what a blessing it is to pray for them and to encourage them, make their work a joy, not a burden, the writer of Hebrews uh, says to do. Uh, a great statement. Again, we'll read verse 28, and then we'll go on this, this time in Acts 20 and begin to close. It's getting late, Bill. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And then this stern warning, verse 29, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Uh, in the strongest of language, he says, watch out even among your own circle. There are going to be men that are going to take this job to their head and, not, and see it as a position of hierarchy rather than, as Jesus said, the greatest among you is the one who serves. And rather than being eager to serve, they're going to be eager to try to draw away followers for themselves rather than for Jesus Christ. We must always be like John the Baptist in that great painting, always pointing to Jesus, uh, not pointing to ourselves. Uh, Paul warns them and reminds them that, that he served them for three years and, and warned them night and day with tears. Verse 32, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. As, as stern a warning as this is, as great a threat as Paul sees for them coming, he says, I commit you to God and to his grace, and I know that he, he's got this. I know that he can handle this. I know that he will see you through this. 
if you will let him. Uh, verse 33, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Uh, and remember, he was a tent maker with a, Priscilla and Aquila. He, uh, he made tents and he worked with them uh, some of the time to provide uh, his own living. And the elders at the church at Ephesus were very much aware of that. Verse 35, and everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's the purpose, Old Testament and new, for why we work, why we have an income, so that we can provide for ourselves and our family, yes, but so that we can also have enough extra to, to help provide for others. We see that from the very first day of the church in Acts chapter 2, continued all the way throughout. Uh, Paul reminds them again, this was something he was very committed to, and it was something he called on other church leaders to be committed to uh, as well. Certainly in this time of difficulty, the church exists to try to help each other. And so we appreciate so much those who are continuing to give, uh, giving online at our westerwin.com or giving by mailing in a check or bringing by a check or dropping off a check when they are able to come to our worship services. We no longer pass the trays and pass the plates, but we have a, have a plate uh, that, that can be used uh, for collections in our foyer each Sunday. Um, and, and wherever you are, in whichever church you're a part of, continue to support them. They, they need your support. Our church needs that support as well. Uh, this past Sunday, as I'm going through a series on the Lord's Prayer, I preached a sermon on that part that says, give us this day our daily bread. Um, and and I, I think that we can trust God to provide for us. My key word was provider. Uh, he will provide. And we sang the great hymn uh, there uh, after that sermon, Be not dismayed, whate'er be tied. And you know the next line? God will take care of you. Um, certainly we believe that as well. Paul reminds them of the one beatitude <laughs> that Jesus said that's not recorded in the Gospels. We read about those beatitudes uh, in, in Matthew 5 and also in Luke in a little bit different form, um, in Luke 6. But here is that a beatitude that is, if you have a red-letter Bible, it's in red because it's the words of Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. We don't read that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but we read it from Paul, uh, quoting Jesus that he had seen firsthand after his resurrection uh, and quoting it to shepherds of God's church to remind them to remember the poor, to remember those who are in need, uh, because Jesus himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. This great chapter ends with this very emotional moment after sharing so much with them for a few years and going through so much with at, there at Ephesus, his life being threatened, um, and, and now talking to them and them traveling to meet with him and, and going through this time of, of concern and, and reminders of the relationship they had and the work they have done and the warning that, look, be careful because there are, there are some of your own that are going to stray and are going to try to get disciples for themselves. And, and yet God is there and his grace will cover you if you will let it. And don't forget to remember the mission of the church to try to help others and serve others and love neighbor as self and, and, and be blessed, as Jesus said, uh, by giving rather than receiving. 
Um, great, great words. And then before Paul leaves, there's this emotional moment uh, that's described in Acts chapter 20, verse 36. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. Can you imagine these elders, these shepherds of God's church at Ephesus, kneeling down with the Apostle Paul and with others perhaps that were with him and praying together about the things that Paul had warned them about, about the things that Paul had said were ahead for him, uh, the difficulties he would face, the difficulties that the church at Ephesus would face. Um, these elders, these godly men, knelt down with Paul and his party and prayed. They all wept, verse 37, as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most, Luke records, was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. And this passage ends with the first part of chapter 21. This simple statement before Luke talks about the next leg of the journey. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea. What a great statement of the relationship between Paul and these men who were elders, not even of the church at, uh, uh, at, in Antioch of Syria, but this church that he had spent years with, uh, ministering to and helping and pleading and teaching and, and praying over and suffering with. And now they had come and they had had this very emotional time together. And they knelt and prayed and they wept and they blessed and they hugged and and, um, and they had to tear themselves away from each other. That's the kind of relationship that church leaders should have with each other, that intense connection emotionally and spiritually as co-laborers, co-workers in God's kingdom. Uh, Paul described himself that way with Apollos and others. I planted Apollos water, but God gives the increase. God makes it grow. Whatever we do, to help the church and to serve the church. Uh, we do that as partners in ministry with our fellow leaders, our fellow members. And that's how Paul saw himself with these elders at the church at Ephesus. Um, what a great connection. I have been blessed in over 40 years of full-time ministry to work with such incredible godly men. And I can tell you that's still true uh, today. Human, human men, yes, absolutely, just like their preacher is human and comes with a package that includes some faults and sins and weaknesses. Uh, but men who have always, each step of the way, been genuinely, sincerely from their hearts, desiring to serve the Lord in his church as best they can. Uh, what a great blessing um, you men are who serve as elders. What a great blessing your wives are who support you and encourage you in that ministry and are a part of that ministry as well. Uh, what a great blessing as church members to have godly men to serve as our elders, uh, our overseers, our shepherds. Uh, pray for them. Pray for them always. Uh, the work of the church continued through the first century, just like it does today. We see a, 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 a glimpse into a church as they met for worship on Sunday at Troas, and we see a, a glimpse into the, the, the crisis and the difficulties and the burdens that church leaders felt uh, in the first century with these elders at Ephesus and Paul himself. And we know, we know that those same burdens, uh, that, that same uh, desire and eagerness to serve is there amongst God's leaders uh, today. So whether you're at West Irwin in Tyler, Texas, or wherever you are, pray for your leaders. Encourage them, support them in any way you can. Make their work a joy, uh, not a burden, 
and continue to hold them up uh, before the Lord and continue to uh, serve the Lord in, in each step of your journey as well. Thank you for being a part of this study. God bless you. And I'll see you on Thursday as we get to go to Jerusalem and be arrested. Awesome. I'll see you then.